0: Hey guys, welcome to Yeah! Let's clap for that. The reason that I wanted you to see that story of Drew and Sarah is because they're an example of a a couple that's been married for 14 years, and eight of their years were really, really hard. I mean, really, really difficult to the point of that video that they just felt totally hopeless. Um, But by the grace of God, man, the last six years have, have been very, very different. And one of the things I love about Drew and Sarah is that they share their story and they invest in other couples because they want other couples to learn what, what they have learned. And we've been walking through the Gospel of Mark. So if you're new with us, this is what we do: we just kind of go through different books of the Bible. We believe it takes the whole Bible to make a whole Christian. It is always raining when I preach. Every time I preach, it rains. Um, it is just the Lord's blessing coming down the world. Uh, we, we believe it takes the whole Bible to make a whole Christian, and so we just walk through books of the Bible. And today we come to Mark chapter 10. So if you have a Bible, you can meet me there. Mark chapter 10, starting in verse one. And uh, this text is all about marriage. And Divorce. Okay, it is all about marriage and divorce. It's one of Jesus' definitive statements on marriage and divorce. Um, And so we're going to talk about that today. And what I know about marriage and divorce is that they're very, very personal and very, very emotional subjects. Okay, you might be here right now and you might be in a really, really hard marriage. Like, like you're here and you kind of, you know, put a smile on because you feel like you have to. But man, you're your spouse and you are not doing well. And I mean, you're just not sure if you're going to make it through another month. Um, you, you might be considering divorce. Uh, maybe you didn't want to get divorced, but, but your spouse left and there's nothing that you could do about it. Um, maybe your parents are divorced and, and you've experienced the, the heartache and the grief that, that comes with that. Uh, on a more positive side, maybe, maybe you're engaged and you want to know, like, what does Jesus say about marriage? What should we be trying to build here if we want to build something that honors, honors God? Or, or maybe you're, you're married and you're like, where, where do we go from here? What are we trying to do? Well, no matter who you are, where you're coming from, this text is going to be relevant because marriage and divorce impacts all of us. And in this text, Jesus tells us God's design for marriage. Okay, God's design for marriage, and here's the context. Some people come to Jesus, and they ask him a question about divorce, a very controversial, controversial subject, and he talks about it a little bit, but really, rather than addressing divorce, he addresses God's design for marriage. And the reason he does that is that you, you can only really understand what God says about divorce when you understand what God says about marriage. And so that's what we're going to do today. We're going to walk through this text, and first we're going to talk about what God says about marriage, and then uh, as a response to that, we're going to talk about what God says about divorce, okay? And, and before we get started, I just want to pray for us because I know that this is, man, this is a very, very personal, very, very emotional subject. You might be here right now being like, I can't believe this is the subject I came to church for today. So let me just pray that, that God would just minister to us and then we'll jump in, okay? Well, I thank you for your word and that it's for our good, but God, I recognize that, man, we all come to this text and this topic with different um, experiences. And so Lord, I just pray that you would be here really presently to minister to us, That you would remind us of your goodness, that you're our good father. And so what you say for us is for our good. So God, give me grace to speak in that way. And I pray that we would hear in that way, that we would be changed by your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, Mark chapter 10, verse 1. It says this. And he, Jesus, left there, that's Capernaum, and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again and again, as was his custom, he taught them. So in verse 1 of chapter 10, Jesus begins his final journey to Jerusalem. Okay, So in just a few chapters, uh, Jesus is going to enter into the capital city. He's going to begin Passion Week, and he's going to die for the sins of the world. And so as we read this text and as we read what Jesus has to say about marriage and divorce, it might not be uh, what you were expecting. It might not be what you would like it to be, but, but keep in mind the context, that, that this is not uh, a kind of uh, distant relative. This is not some sort of uh, detracted friend of yours, but this is your savior. This, this is someone who loves you so much that, man, he went to the cross so that you could be forgiven. And so even when we don't understand or agree with his words, we can trust that they're for our good. And so he's moving down towards Jerusalem from the north in Galilee. And, and Mark says, uh, again, as was his custom, he was teaching. And if you've been with us through the gospel of Mark, you know, Jesus is always doing this. He's always teaching, 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 teaching. Well, why does he do so much teaching? Well, it's for the same reason that I needed glasses in the third grade, okay? In the third grade, I realized I couldn't see the math problems and everybody else could. And I was convinced it was not my fault. It was the teacher's fault. But my mom's like, no, you really need glasses. And so we got glasses and I put them on. All of a sudden, what was previously fuzzy and unclear became clear. Okay, well, in the same way, but naturally, we don't see the world clearly. We don't see it according to God's design. We see it through, man, our cultural preferences and our experiences and a lot of things that we've picked up over the years. And so what Jesus does is he comes along and he says, hey, I've got these glasses. They're called the Word of God. And I want to offer them to you so that you can see the world not, not through kind of your experiences or, or your, you know, cultural moment, but, but through the lens of God's design. And so that you can see how God designed the world to be, how God designed relationships to be. And, man, that's so important with a topic like marriage and divorce because everybody has an opinion about it right you have an opinion i have an opinion your parents have an opinion your professors your you know your your therapist has an opinion everyone has an opinion about it so the question we need to ask is not what's my opinion or your opinion or my idea or your idea but man, what does god's word say about this really important really personal subject and that's what jesus is going to tell us okay so he's teaching this is what happens verse 2 and pharisees came up and in order to test him asked is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife Now notice that the Pharisees didn't come humbly seeking wisdom from Jesus. They came arrogantly to test him. You see, just like today, back then divorce was a controversial subject. So they figured, hey, we can pin Jesus into a corner. We can get people mad at him by asking him this question. So this is how he responded. Verse 3, he answered them, what did Moses command you? So as was his custom, Jesus answered their question with a question, right? Like, that's a great tactic to bring up. Like, if you're ever in an argument, just keep asking questions, and eventually they will be like, what's going on? So they, they, are, they come at him, and Jesus says, well, well what did Moses command you? You see, um, Jesus asked the question, what do the scriptures say? What do the scriptures say? You see, marriage and divorce are so personal, they're so emotional, they're so situational, that if we don't ground our understanding in theology and in the scriptures, we're just going to be carried away in our emotions. Right, We're just going to be carried away in what our friends say or what our parents say or what our culture says. So Jesus says, hey, I'm not interested in like, your idea or my idea. What do the scriptures say? Verse 4, they respond. They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Now that, that was true. So in Deuteronomy 24, Jewish law permitted divorce. The Pharisees knew that. Jesus knew that. That, that was not like a shocker for they wasn't like oh I didn't know that right. Jesus didn't know. Jesus knew his Old Testament very well. Okay, so he he knew that. And here's the the background. If a if a husband found indecency. In his wife, that's the word in the Old Testament, indecency, he was permitted to divorce her as long as he provided a certificate of divorce, which provided a degree of legal and social protection, okay? So everyone agreed on that. No one disagreed on that at that time. The question was, what constituted indecency? All right, because the answer to that question determines so much practically. And at the time that Jesus was talking to these, these men, there were two different camps, uh, you know, if you will. The first was the Shammai camp. Okay? So the Shammai camp were conservative. The Shammai camp said that the only thing that qualifies as indecency is adultery. So they would argue that the only reason that you can divorce your wife is if she has committed adultery against you. Nothing else qualifies. Well, there's another camp called the Hillel camp, which was very, very permissive. And the Hillel camp said, really, you could divorce your wife for any reason. I mean, literally, if you didn't like her cooking, you could call that indecency and you could divorce her. Uh, And some in the the Hillel camp went so far to even say that it was your duty to divorce your wife if she didn't make you happy. That if she didn't fulfill you, if she didn't satisfy you, if, if you weren't happy with the relationship, it was your duty to yourself to divorce your wife, which kind of brings up echoes of our culture today, which says, hey, if your spouse doesn't fulfill you, if your spouse doesn't make you happy, then you owe it to yourself to start over to find somebody that will. Okay? So those are the two camps. Here's the question. Jesus, what camp are you in? That's what they're trying to get at. They're trying to get someone mad at him. He's either going to be in the Hillel camp or the Shammai camp, but we're going to get somebody mad at Jesus. But it's very, very hard to trap Jesus. That's what you're going to find if you've been reading with Mark. And so here's how Jesus responds in verse five. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. So Jesus doesn't go with Shammai. He doesn't go with Hillel. He goes to the very text itself and he says. Man, the concession of Deuteronomy 24 was given because of your hardness of heart. Translation, divorce is not part of God's design for marriage. It's not part of God's design for marriage. However, it was happening in Israel because of hard-hearted people. Hard-hearted people in Israel who refused to love and to serve and to forgive one another. You see, we're told in Romans chapter 9, verse 6, that not everyone who is ethnically a part of Israel was spiritually a part of Israel. So to use kind of New Testament terminology, not everyone that was ethnically Israelite was a Christian. Not all of them had new hearts. Many of them had hard, stubborn hearts towards God. And because they had hard, stubborn hearts toward God, they they refused to forgive. They refused to serve. They refused to remain faithful to their covenant. So divorce was happening. It was widespread in Israel, and there was all this fallout, okay? There was all this fallout. And so Deuteronomy 24 was given as a concession to mitigate against the fallout of divorce and to protect women. Okay, so that is what Jesus has to say about Deuteronomy 24. Now, here's the thing. These guys come to Jesus wanting to talk about divorce, and what Jesus says is he starts talking about marriage. So most of this text is about God's design for marriage because you can only understand what God says about divorce in light of what God says about marriage. Okay, look at verse 6 with me. Jesus said this, But from the beginning of creation, so even before Deuteronomy 24, from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Let not man separate. Uh, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4 says, says, let marriage be held in honor among all. So one of the roles and responsibilities of the church is to teach and uphold a biblical design and a biblical view of marriage. Okay, that's what I want to do today. I want to try to give you a biblical understanding of marriage. Now, if you want to do a deep dive on this, if you just want to do some deep reading, there's a great book called God, Marriage, and Family by Andreas Kostenberger. Just based on his name, you know that's a deep book, right? So I've been reading it. It's really, really helpful. That's the book to pick up. If you want to know what the whole Bible says about it, he goes into every single text in the scriptures. It's really good. I'm not going to do that today for the sake of time, but I'm going to draw out three principles of biblical marriage, three principles of God's design for marriage that we see right here in this text. But before we do that, before we talk about God's design for marriage, we need to talk about our society's understanding of marriage. Because a lot of times you understand what God says when you kind of hold it up against what our society says. So think of it this way. You ever been, uh, you know, speaking of marriage, I remember when I went to pick out my engagement ring for Meredith, and, you know, I was like this 23-year-old, and I was totally in over my head, and I'm, I'm at this, you know, jewelry place. And man, if you know this, all the diamonds are set on black velvet. You ever notice that? And there's these bright lights on top of them. That's because the beauty of a diamond is brought out when you put it against the, the darkness of the velvet. Well, in the same way, let's, look at, let's first look at kind of the velvet of what our culture and our society says about marriage so that we can really see the beauty of what God says about marriage. Okay? So what does our, our society say about marriage? Well, it depends on who you ask and where you ask it. Um, if you go to a university context, uh, you might hear a professor uh, you know, say that marriage uh, is an institution that was created by the patriarchy uh, that, was, that was designed and used to oppress women. Now, that may or may not be true of traditional marriage, but it is not historically true of biblical marriage. And there's a difference between a traditional view of marriage and a biblical view of marriage. You see, for the first 300 years of the Christian movement, one of the things that made Christianity so compelling to women was the Christian understanding of marriage. Because you see, the Bible calls men to an incredibly high standard. The Bible is like, you need to lay your life down to serve, love, protect, and lead your spouse. She is your equal. You're supposed to treat her with respect and dignity. That was radically different in the Roman context. That was not how Roman men related to women. And so, man, women saw this going on in the Christian movement. And they were like, I'm not sure I know about Jesus yet, but that is really compelling. And so, historically speaking, what you hear on university campuses is just not true of Christian marriage. I can't speak to traditional marriage, but it's just not historically accurate of biblical marriage. Now, beyond the academy, if you kind of go out to the broader cultural level... I think what you're going to find is that among a lot of people, particularly young adults, there's an increasing wariness and pessimism about marriage in general. Man, many people believe that their chances of having a good marriage are pretty slim, and even if their marriage is stable, man, there's the, you know, there's the horrifying prospect that it will become boring and stifling, right? Uh, as, As comedian Chris Rock once asked, "Do you want to be single and lonely, or married and bored?" That was his question. Do you want to be single and married or lonely and bored? And, and that's what many, many people in our society believe the options are. And so that's why a lot of people aim for something in between, okay? They aim for something between, man, commitment in marriage and kind of random sexual encounters. It's often called cohabitation, right? It's the idea that you can kind of have partnership. You can have somebody that's consistent, man, but you don't have to kind of get into marriage, which, man, there, there's just not a lot of uh, chances of it going well. So less people in our society are getting married, and people are getting married at a much older age, so historically and globally, you got married in your late teens to your early 20s. And the idea was that you built a life together. So you figured out career and family and, and life and church and all these things together. So you kind of built your life together, and that was, that was how it worked. But that's not the case today. That, that is very rarely how people think about uh, marriage today. Meredith and I got married when we were 23, which historically and globally is not that young. And it was shocking to my friends. Like, I have, you know, if a fair amount of friends that are not Christians, they are like, what? Like, you're doing what? Like, I had three children before most of my friends were engaged, okay? Like, like most people today, most young adults aren't even thinking about marriage until they get to 30. And that's because the narrative in Western culture has shifted. Rather than thinking, hey, we're going to build a life together, most people in Western society think, man, I need to accomplish all my life ambitions before I get married because marriage is restrictive. And so I want, to, I want to get all the degrees that I want to get. I want to do the travel that I want to do. I want to get established in my career. I want to be in a certain place financially. And then once I've done all those things, then I'll consider getting married. Now, there are legitimate reasons to uh, delay marriage. I'm not saying that they're not, but I would just suggest to you that the longer you are single and the longer you are an autonomous individual, the harder it is to stop being single and stop being autonomous as an individual, right? And all the people who have been married for a long time know that, right? And, and so, you know, our society kind of says like, hey, marriage is boring. Marriage is hard. Marriage is not likely to end well. So wait until you've accomplished all your other goals because, man, it's really just kind of puts you in a box, okay? So that's what our society... Thinks about marriage. So, what does the Bible say about marriage? Let me give you three principles. Here is the first one. Number one, marriage is God's idea. Marriage is God's idea. You see this in verse six. When Jesus talked about marriage, he made reference to both Genesis one twenty-seven and Genesis two twenty-four. So, one twenty-seven is God made the male and female. Genesis two twenty-four is you know leave father and mother, hold fast to your wife. Those are the two foundational Old Testament texts about marriage. So, what that means is Jesus didn't view marriage as a social institution that we're free to reinvent and reshape without consequences. Jesus didn't say like, well, hey, here's what I think, and here's what you think, and here's what the rabbis in the fourth century thought. No, Jesus goes all the way back to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and says, this is how God designed this thing to be. According to Jesus, marriage is a sacred bond between a man and a woman instituted by God and entered into before him. Marriage is God's idea. So marriage is God's idea, and marriage is a great idea. I mean, it is a a beautiful and wonderful idea. Let's just think about the wonder of biblical marriage for just a moment. This idea is deeply embedded in the storyline of scriptures. Fun Bible trivia here. Did you know that the Bible begins and ends with a wedding? That it begins and it ends with a wedding. It begins in the Garden of Eden with the wedding of Adam and Eve. It ends in the book of Revelation with the marriage of Christ to his church. Do you know who the very first father was to walk a bride down the aisle? God. Do you know who the very first pastor was to officiate a wedding? God. Do you know who the very last pastor is going to be to officiate a wedding? God. Marriage is embedded in the storyline of the scriptures. You see, one of the primary ways that God talks about his relationship to his people in the Old Testament and in the New Testament is that of a husband to his wife. In the Old Testament, he often says, I am a faithful husband who has sought out my bride Israel, but she has been faithless to me. Instead of being faithful to me, she has gone and, and she's, she's worshipped idols and she's given herself to, to false gods who are not her true husband. Man, this is how God thinks about his relationship to his people. And as a perfect, loving, steadfast husband, he knew that he was going to go after his people and he was going to save them. Here's a deep thought. You got to trap with me for just a second. Here's a deep thought. Sometimes we look at marriage and we think, what a beautiful thing. What a beautiful thing that helps us understand God better. What a good idea. But this is actually what happened. Before Adam and Eve, before the heavens and the earth, before a plant was on the earth, God knew that he was going to create a people. He knew that we were going to rebel against him. He knew that he was going to pursue us through sacrificial love. And he knew that he was going to bring us into union with him in a covenant relationship. He knew all of that. Knowing all of that, what did he do? He created marriage. He said, I'm going to create something. I'm going to embed it in all of society and every single human culture for every single year on the earth so that when people get married, they can understand a little bit more about how I feel about my people. So every time you go to a wedding, you are going to something that was established in the foreknowledge of God, like before he created the heavens and the earth, that is this deep picture of his love for his people. It is a picture of his eternal covenant. So here's what that means. Every good marriage is like a ray of the sun, man, that leads us back to its source, right? Every time, every time husbands, you lay down your preferences to serve your wife, you are like a ray of the gospel that is pointing your wife back to Christ is every time you respect and you follow your husband's leadership and you pray for him and you serve him, and you are like a, a ray of the sun that is pointing us back to the source that is the church. Man, so, so marriage is not just something that culture came up with that we're free to sort of reinvent and redesign as, as we see fit, but man, it's in the very fabric of society. God created it before eternity passed and he gave it to us as a gift. So the first thing Jesus tells us is that marriage is God's idea. Here's the second thing Jesus tells us. Number two, marriage is between a man and a woman. Marriage is between a man and a woman. When Jesus said, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, he affirmed God's design for monogamous, lifelong, and heterosexual marriage. You see, to understand God's design for marriage, we have to understand what the Bible says about gender, okay? We have to understand what the Bible says about gender, because all in those verses, God's talking about male and female, man and woman. We're leaving our father and mother, we're going, we're cleaving to our wife, so there's this gender language, and so we need to understand what the Bible says about gender, So gender is the word that we use to describe God's gift of creating each of us, either male or female. So if you're a male, you have XY chromosomes. If you're a female, you have YY or XX chromosomes, right? We don't choose our genetic code. Our parents don't choose our genetic code. Our gender is given to us by God, and the Lord never makes mistakes. And it's important to recognize that our gender isn't determined by what we do or like or think. And this is really, really important in the church because sometimes we have these images of what it means to be a man or what it means to be a woman that are actually not from the scriptures. They're just from somewhere in traditional culture. So here's the reality. Some women love to sing and dance. Others like to run and climb. Man, others, others like to cook. Others like to fix cars. That doesn't affect whether they're a woman or not. It's just what their interests are. Some men love sports. Others are artists. Others sing. Others cook. Others fix cars. So here's what I'd say. Your gender isn't determined by your interests. Your gender is determined by your creator. And so this is, this is helpful in two directions. One, this is helpful, and we're going to talk about the cultural conversation in just a second, but this is helpful within the church, that, that you don't have to fit some sort of perfect picture and image of what you think a, a man should be or a woman should be. If you are in line with what the scriptures say, man, you can like cars, you can like music, you can cook, you can do whatever, because your gender isn't determined by your activities, your gender is determined by your creator. Now, historically and globally, the idea that biology and gender are the same has been a, uh, what's been considered a self-evident reality. So if you kind of look for the last 2,000 years, if you look all around, in fact, if you look all around the world today except for Western culture, this is still like seen as as pretty self-evident. But over the last 50 years in Western culture in particular, and really only in Western culture, uh, man, some have argued that your biology is irrelevant to your authentic self. And so the idea is that um, you could be biologically man, but you could identify as a woman or vice versa. Um, and, and oftentimes that argument sounds compassionate at first because usually it's addressed to people who are really struggling with what's known as gender dysphoria. So people who are, who are, you know, they say, hey, I'm a woman, but I don't feel like a woman. I don't feel pretty like a woman. I don't feel like I like the things that women like. I don't have any positive female role models, so I, I feel more like a man. And, and it's a very emotional, tra- challenging, grievous situation. It's very, very hard. It often is connected to anxiety and depression and sometimes suicide, right? So it's a very personal, tender issue. And so the argument at first sounds compassionate, like, yeah, like, let's meet those people and help them. You know, if they're biologically a man, but they identify as a woman, all right, let's, let's help them do that. But when you actually think about the issue from a biblical perspective, you realize it's not a compassionate argument. Because what the scripture says is that God made us with bodies, with minds, and with spirits. And that they're all connected together. And that if you denigrate any one of them, it hurts the, the whole. And so what happens when we say, hey, yeah, you're biologically this, but intellectually you say you're that, so you're that. What we're doing is we're denigrating the body, we're, we're pushing the body down, and we're saying the body doesn't really matter. And you might like what that, you know, lets you do or say in that instance, but it's, you're not going to like how it makes you feel in this other instance. Right? Because if you consistently say my body doesn't matter, eventually it's going to pop up in your intellect, Right? Like you've had this, if you, if you continually treat your, if you don't sleep well, if you eat badly, if you over-caffeinate, if you drink too much alcohol and you're just like, my body doesn't matter, your body's going to be like, yes, I do. right? It's, it's going to catch up. And so, man, God's word for us is good. He says, look, I made you physical, spiritual, intellectual, and they all work together. And so the argument that you can just kind of pull them apart and say the intellectual matters more than the biological just doesn't hold up biblically and it doesn't even hold up experientially with people who have done it. So I don't have time to get into the whole discussion right now, but let me give you two resources, okay? If you're a parent and you're looking for a way to talk to your kids about gender, which you have to have these conversations because it's going to come up, the book I would recommend is a book called God Made Boys and Girls by Marty Mikowski. God Made Boys and Girls by Marty Mikowski. It's a really, really helpful book. It's very theologically sound. It's very accessible for kids. If you just want to understand this discussion more, if you want to understand the philosophical arguments underneath of it, there's a really great book called Love Thy Body by Nancy Percy. Okay, Love Thy Body by Nancy Percy. It gets into all of the things that are being debated at the cultural level. It gets into the questions underneath of them, okay? So I I don't have time to get into all that right now, but all I'm saying is that it's clear that Jesus affirmed the biblical position that marriage is between a man and a woman right? That, that's not something that's culturally conditioned. That's not something that we're free to kind of like play with. Jesus goes all the way back to the very beginning. He says, this is God's creation design that marriage between, would be between a man and a woman. Okay. That's number two. Here's principle number three. Marriage involves two becoming one. Marriage involves two becoming one. This is going to be a longer point, okay? But it's really, really important. In our society, marriage is often seen as the coming together of two autonomous individuals. And the idea is that they just kind of remain autonomous individuals, but they share a house and, and you know, maybe they share some other, other parts of their life. Um, in fact, I was at a, a wedding years ago um, where, it's very odd, where the husband and the wife got up and for their vows, they pledged to remain autonomous individuals. I was like really confused by that. I was just like, I thought that the whole point of vows was we're going to come together. But they got up and they basically said like, hey, I won't change you. You won't try to change me. We'll just kind of stay. And that was like their vows. If it wasn't a Christian marriage, I was like, okay, this is interesting. Um, I wouldn't recommend that. Uh, you know, I mean, one of, the, one of the phrases that you'll hear, like one of the kind of things in popular culture that people will tell you, they'll pull your side, this is what they'll say, hey, don't lose yourself in marriage. Haven't you heard that? Hey, don't lose yourself in marriage. What is that? No, 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 you need to, you need to remain an autonomous individual. This isn't two becoming one. This is two autonomous individuals who are coming together and saying, yeah, we'll do this for a while and we'll see how it, see how it works out. So what did Jesus say? Well, Jesus said, hey, look, a man leaves his father and mother and he cleaves to his wife and the two become one flesh. So biblical, in biblical marriage, it's not two autonomous individuals living life together. It's two autonomous individuals who are coming together and becoming one flesh. One new thing. So what does it mean for two to become one flesh? Well, I'll give you at least three things that it means from the scriptures. Here's letter A. Two become one in companionship. Two become one in companionship. So if you go back to Genesis chapter two, what you'll find is that man, God created Adam, and then he created Eve to be a suitable companion for Adam. And so companionship is at the very bottom and foundation of the biblical idea of marriage. And if you go to Malachi chapter two, Malachi chapter two is probably the densest theology of marriage in the Old Testament. We see this uh, highlighted again, that, that God refers to uh, men, husband and wives as companions from your youth. And in Hebrew, the word, the word companion is really moving. The word companion in Hebrew means we share things. We share things. So, then we share our secrets, our feelings, our dreams, our experiences, our children. And we share the same values. We share the same faith. We share the same church. We walk with one another through the victories and disappointments of life. We walk with one another through celebration and through grief. We rejoice with one another and we weep with one another. As I, as I talk to people um, you know, today, a lot of people see the idea of, of a wife taking her husband's last name and like, shared bank accounts and things like that. It's just sort of like antiquated ideas from traditional society. Uh, but they're actually important symbols of companionship in marriage. That's actually why Christians did that for years and years. I mean, if, if you plan to remain two autonomous individuals, then I think it makes a lot of sense that you would maintain separate last names and, and separate bank accounts and uh, separate bedrooms. I even know people who are married who live in separate cities. And it's not like a temporary thing. It's like, yeah, this is just what we do. And I was just like, huh, right? And so if that's kind of what you plan to do, I think it would make sense. But if you're saying, no, we're pursuing the biblical design of two becoming one, and we're not going to be autonomous individuals. We're going to be in this kind of mystical, wonderful way. We're going to be two that become one flesh. Then I think it makes a lot of sense for all those things to come together. Now, I'm not not saying you're in sin if if you and your husband have different last names or if you guys have different bank accounts. I'm just saying there is substance to those symbols. There is a reason why people have done that for a a long, long time. You see, in a healthy biblical marriage, your spouse should be your best friend. In a healthy biblical marriage, your spouse should be your best friend. He should be the one that you share, man, your deepest secrets with, your, your emotions, your desires, your disappointments, your dreams. Man, she should be the one that you go to when you need counsel. She should be the one that you talk to every night. You shouldn't be closer with your bros than with your wife. You shouldn't be closer with your girlfriends or with your mom than with your husband. Man, all those things are good. All those relationships are a blessing. But man, when two become one in companionship, it means, man, you guys are united in this thing together. And it really is one of God's graces for the pilgrimage of our life. Because I don't know if you've felt this, but man, life changes a lot, doesn't it? I mean, our society is so highly mobile, man, people are moving in and moving out, like, you live long enough, and you're like, well, I used to have this job, and now I have this job, and I used to live in this place, and now I live in that place, and I used to have these friends, and then they moved, and now I don't have those friends, um, and I remember this, this came home to me real personally a couple years ago, um, you know, Charlottesville is a pretty transient town, for, for and that's not bad, there's just reasons for that, and I remember in one week, in a one-week span, two of our closest friends told us they were moving, like, people that, that we had invested a ton of time with, that, like, my kids called like uncle this and aunt that, like both of them in the, in the same span of time told us that. And I just remember thinking that night, I was just like, is this just my life? Like, is just, just like everybody going to leave. And I remember in that moment, I thought, Meredith's not leaving. She's not allowed to leave, you know? Um... <laughs> um And yeah, it was just comforting, you know, marriage, companionship in marriage is one of the ways that God gives us the the grace of cohesion and unity across time, even though our lives change so much, okay? And so, I don't know what your application is from that one, Maybe, maybe you need to make some adjustments, maybe you guys need to spend more time together, maybe you need to talk more often. I heard a respected biblical counselor say that you have to talk to your spouse for 90 minutes a week in order to build strong companionship. That could be like all at once. That could be like 15 minutes, six times, six times a week. A lot of people are giggling and looking at each other right now, um, right? But like you just have to talk a lot in order to build strong companionship. So maybe that's what you need to do. Maybe you need to schedule a date night, right? Maybe, maybe you need to, you know, stop going to whoever else with your deepest desires and dreams and frustrations and start going to your spouse. And you say, well, he's not good at listening. Well, he's got to get better, okay? Like we got to work on this. That's, that's why we're here, Okay. And so the the first way that two become one flesh biblically is through companionship. Here's the second way that two become one flesh. Two become one in covenant, in covenant. So the idea of covenant in marriage is implied in Genesis chapter 2, and it's explicitly stated in Malachi 2. So if you want, you can go and look at that with your missional community this week. Um, Throughout history, there have always been consumer relationships and covenant relationships, okay? Consumer relationships and covenant relationships. A consumer relationship lasts only as long as the vendor meets your needs at an acceptable price. And so if another vendor meets your needs at a better price, you have no obligation to stick with the first vendor, okay? So we we all understand this, right? You know, gas stations and coffee shops and oil change, all right, right? that's just, we we get that. And consumer relationships are fine and good for the marketplace. But, you know, in opposition to consumer relationships throughout history, there's also been what's called covenant relationships. A covenant relationship is different. You see, in a covenant relationship, the good of the relationship transcends the immediate needs of the individual. So take parenting, for example. Um, a parent may get very little out of raising a child, right, especially if they're an infant. Man, but, but what if you were talking to a mom at church today who had a newborn, and she was just like, you know what, I'm done with it. I mean, he just doesn't ever listen, and, you know, I don't, this isn't good for my self-care, you know, um, Right, like, you'd be like, I don't, I don't think you're understanding this relationship correctly, right? Because we all just sort of understand that parent-child is a covenant relationship, that no matter how hard your child is, you're their mom or you're their dad, right? And, and you, are, you are called to be committed to them. It, just because they're not, you know, meeting your needs in the moment doesn't mean you can just kind of like, man, say farewell. Well, the, biblical marriage is covenantal, okay? Biblical marriage is covenantal as, a, as opposed to being consumeristic. And here's what a covenant marriage says. A covenant marriage says neither of us is leaving. Neither of us is leaving. It says, I'm committed to you in all the ways that you will change. I'm committed to you in all the ways that you will change. And here's what you know if you've been married for any amount of time. Your spouse is not the same person today as they were when you married them. Right? I mean, think about it. Are you the same person you were 10 years ago? Do you have the same interests, the same preferences, same waistline? I don't, right? Like, Like, you you just change over time, and you get married, and that, I mean, now that's like a whole new identity, and then if you have kids, like, gosh, you know, I remember uh, when when Meredith became a mom, like, man, it changed her in a really good way, but like, she's different now that she has four kids than she was before she had it. Man, I'm different too. And so what biblical marriage says is, look, I'm committed to you in all the ways that you're going to change. I'm committed to you in the seasons that are really fruitful and that I really enjoy, and I'm committed to you in the seasons that are really hard where you're working through things and God is doing a work in your life. And and theologically speaking, covenant marriage is really important because it represents God's commitment to you. Okay, think about it. You don't want God thinking about divorce, do you? No. You're like, thank the Lord that when, when I was saved, he sealed me. And he's not giving up on me, and he's not going to go be like, man, Josh is the worst. I'm finding a thinner, smarter, better-looking person to be a pastor, you know? Like, that, that's just not how God treats his people. Like, God is committed to his people in covenant, and that's our hope, and that's our assurance for the future. And so it's important that our marriages reflect the spiritual reality that they're intended to reflect. So it's important theologically, but covenant is, always, is also important practically in your marriage. Because, you know, here's what you'll find, and you heard this on the video with Drew and Sarah, when you realize there's no way out, you just have to find a way through. Like, like Drew and Sarah got to year 14, and they're doing great now, and they've got, man, three beautiful girls, and those girls have got their mom and their dad in the home. Because at year 8, when they sat up at 3 in the morning, we're like, can we get divorced? they were like, no. We can't get divorced. Do you want to go to Buffalo Wild Wings, okay? And, and, and sometimes when you just had that, like, there's no getting out, we, we've burned the ships, you, you just have to work it out, and it's hard. Because it means you're going to have to like work through things, and you're going to have to fight, and you're going to have to talk, and you're going to have to forgive, and you're probably going to have to get the church involved and let people know about your dirty laundry, and it's hard, right? But if you know like this, this is where we are. We can't get out of this thing. We got to get through it. Then on the back end, you can often build a really beautiful, really strong love that you never could have gotten to, man. If it, you know, year two and things got man uh, hard, you you said, hey, let's just go our separate ways. So you know, maybe your application today. If, if you're married, is to just abandon your exit strategy. Just be like, look, there is no exit strategy. We're not getting out of this, so we got to get through it. Maybe you need to stop using the divorce word in arguments, and just like we're not—that's not a word that we use in our in our marriage, right? As you're man dating and as you're man pursuing marriage, maybe you just need to recognize, like, okay, if I go through with this, he's mine forever. Am I comfortable with that, right? I mean, it just kind of all of a sudden it's like he's cute. Is he that cute? You know, like if it's gonna be you know a covenant, it just it just changes how you engage with a relationship. Okay, and so two become one in uh, companionship. Two become one in covenant. Here's the last one: two become one in consummation. Two become one in consummation. So by consummation, I mean sexual union. Okay, I mean sexual union. In Genesis 1 and 2, God created Adam and Eve as separate genders. He brought them together in covenant marriage, and then he commanded them to be fruitful and to multiply. And if you go through the scriptures, man, they celebrate the goodness of sexual union in the marriage covenant. So you see this in Proverbs chapter 5. You see this in the entire book of the Song of Solomon. You see it in 1 Corinthians 7. Okay, sexual union is a symbol that God has given couples to demonstrate their commitment to one another. In sexual union, two literally become one flesh. I've heard one pastor describe it. Every, every time you come together as a couple, you are performing a covenant renewal ceremony. You are demonstrating, declaring, man, physically what is true of you spiritually and covenantally. Which is one of the reasons that premarital sex is harmful is because you, you are experiencing physical union with someone before you experience covenantal union. That's, that's why it's harmful. That's why the Bible says, hey, keep the marriage bed pure, because if you come together with someone sexually that you're not married with, you give yourself in an intimate and vulnerable way without the security of the covenant commitment, right? Which is why if, if you go through a breakup and, and you and that person were physically involved, it's so much harder. It's so much more emotionally traumatic, man, because you've been deeply connected in a way that God designed to be within the covenant commitment. So consummation is one of the important ways that two become one in marriage. And when I talk to young Christians about this, they're like, oh, consummate my marriage regularly? Got it. You know, like I won't have any issues with that one, right? And I I always kind of laugh, and this is what I tell them, this is what what I'll tell you. Um, Things change over time. Okay, let's just have let's just have a, a conversation here. Okay, everybody's getting like blushy. Okay, things change over time. When you are young, all of the forces are in your favor, right? Uh, you've got all this sexual drive, and you know how many kids you have? Zero. You have zero kids. You're like a boat with the sail up, and there's a wind behind you, right? And you're just like you're floating through the ocean called love. And then you know what happens when you have kids? All their stuff gets in your boat, and it's all crowded, and the wind stops blowing, and you're like, what happened? You know? Um, and so here's what I tell people. If you wait until the mood strikes and the situation is right, it won't happen, okay? And so as you get older, we're going to we're gonna write it in here. As, as you get older, as we get older in marriage, we just have to be intentional. We have to be intentional to pursue one another, man, in this aspect that God has designed us for. And it's a blessing. And it's for enjoyment. And it's for procreation. And it's for the strengthening of the marriage. Okay. So, Josh, what's your application on this one? Um, I'm just going to read to you from the Bible. And then we're going to move on. Proverbs 5 verses 18 through 19 says this from God's holy word. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Okay? Best sermon ever. All right. <laughs> There you go. Those are the three ways that two two become one, okay? Companionship, covenant, consummation. So that is what Jesus is teaching about about biblical marriage. He's like, you guys want to talk to me about divorce? This is what God means by biblical marriage. And it's important that we know that because when you understand that, you understand why Jesus says what he says about divorce because it's very, very stringent. All right, here's verse 9. What therefore God has joined together in this marriage, let not man separate. Let not man separate. Do not divorce. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. So they're they apparently confused by this. This was apparently just as surprising to them then as it is to many of us today that Jesus would say, no, 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 divorce, not an option. He said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. She commits adultery. So Jesus said, what God has brought together, let not man separate. Okay, and he says, look, if a a man divorces his wife and goes and marries another woman, he commits adultery against his wife. If a woman divorces her her husband and goes and and marries another, she commits adultery against her husband. So what this means is we need to talk about divorce. And divorce is really hard to talk about because it is so intensely personal. Many of you, I'm sure, uh, have experienced divorce. You may be going through divorce right now. You have maybe been impacted by the divorce of someone else. So here's what we need to do. We can't water down Jesus' words. Okay, we need to be clear about what Jesus said, but we need to mingle them with the tears of compassion. Because here's, here's what I know, pastorally, and here's what you know if you've ever been through it. Divorce is one of the most painful things that you can experience in life. I've heard a, a hard divorce compared to non-terminal cancer. That it has the same emotional and physical and spiritual effect on someone as, as going through non-terminal cancer. Okay, so we need to be clear about what Jesus says because we believe that his words are for our good, while at the same time being compassionate and being pastoral and being kind as we talk about these things. So the first thing Jesus says is, look, if a a husband divorces his wife or if a woman divorces her husband and goes and marries another, they commit adultery. Okay, so the the main thing Jesus says about divorce is don't do it. I mean, that's his main point of the sermon, don't do it. The vast majority of biblical references to divorce are prohibitions against it, are warnings against it. In fact, in Malachi chapter 2, verse 16, it says that God hates divorce, that God hates divorce you think, man, that's really intense. And it is, but think about it. If God loves marriage, if God loves healthy, thriving families, then of, of course he, he has to hate divorce, right? Anything that God loves, he has to hate the opposite of it. So God hates divorce. God does not hate divorced people. Okay, God does not hate divorced people. Divorce is an event. Divorce is not an identity. Divorce is a, is a heartbreaking, tragic event. It is not your identity. It is not how God is sees you God hates divorce he does not hate divorced people do you know who else usually hates divorce is divorced people it's like divorce is not a fun thing to go through divorce is not like something that people are striving towards usually when someone goes through a divorce it's because they feel like they have no other options right so so I'm not up here you know if that's you trying to like beat you over the head and be like how dare you i'm just trying to say man this is what jesus says but jesus is also remember going to jerusalem to die for the sins of the world so this is coming from a man who loves you so much that he gave up his life for you so that you could be brought into his family. So that, so that's Jesus' big sermon on divorce is don't get divorced. Okay, that being said, the Bible provides two grounds for what would be permissible divorce. Okay? So we need to, we need to take into the, the whole counsel of God into consideration when we talk about this issue, and we need to read Mark chapter 10 in context of Matthew 19 and 1 Corinthians 7. Okay? The Bible provides two grounds for divorce. The first is adultery. Okay, the first is adultery. In Matthew 19, 9, Jesus gives this same statement but provides an exception. He said no divorce except for sexual immorality. And the the Greek word there is pornea. Okay, and that word generally means sexual immorality. So divorce is permitted biblically on the grounds of sexual immorality. And you might ask the question, why would that be? If if marriage is such a big deal, if divorce is so painful, why would it be permitted on these grounds? Well, the reason is that sexual sin with someone else breaks the marriage covenant. When you experience sexual union with someone that is not your spouse, it's like you're trying to sign on someone else's dotted line. So you you are dissolving your covenant, and as a result, the Bible permits, it does not require, but it does permit divorce in those cases. The second grounds for biblical divorce is abandonment. Okay, is abandonment. So 1 Corinthians 7, Paul is talking to Christian wives who are married to non-Christian husbands. And he's instructing them on how they should live. And this is, this is what he says. Pray for your husband, serve him, be a witness to him. Perhaps he will come to Christ. But if he deserts you, if he abandons you, you are no longer bound to him in covenant, you are free. So those are the two grounds that are given in the Bible, adultery and abandonment. Notice it, it's not like I just don't love him anymore. Or it's like, man, this is really hard or this is not what I imagine my life being like or I don't feel like she, you know, helps me fulfill my dreams. Like, none of that. But the Bible says, hey, adultery and abandonment, which brings up lots of questions. Like, what qualifies as sexual immorality? Like, I caught my spouse on the internet in a place he shouldn't have been. It, does that count? Well, he said he wouldn't do it again and then he did it again. So now does that count? You know, abandonment. My, my husband hasn't, hasn't really talked to me in three years. He comes home he, he, from work. He goes down into his man cave. I feel so lonely. I feel so disregarded. I feel so emotionally numb. Does that count as abandonment? Or my, my wife won't be intimate with me physically. Like it's been a year I've been pursuing her and she just will not respond no matter what I do. Does that count as abandonment? They the answer to all these questions is it is extremely nuanced and it is extremely personal. And so here's what you need in all these situations. Man, you need patience, you need a lot of prayer, you need wise counsel, and you need your church. You need people that are walking with you, that are praying for you, that are serving you, and that love marriage like God loves marriage. Do you know what you don't need? Hear me out here. You don't need your bitter divorced friends. I know that's a little bit forward, but like you know it's true. You know the people that if you go to with your marriage problems, they're gonna be like, just get divorced. Do you know what looks good on paper and is horrible in reality? Divorce. And divorced people will tell you that, right? So we got to walk through these things together and in community. Here's the big idea, okay? The Bible provides those two exceptions, but divorce should never be something that we want to do, but sadly, something that a few people have to do. Divorce should never be something that we want to do. We shouldn't be like, how can I fit into those two situations, but something that sadly a few people have to do. Now, connected to the question of divorce is the question of remarriage, Okay, Josh, I'm here, I am divorced, can I get remarried as a Christian? And just to be honest with you, Christians and pastors disagree about this. Okay, Christians and pastors have different perspectives. I'll tell you what, what I believe. I believe that if a divorce is biblically legitimate, then remarriage is legitimate as well. And I can give you the reasons for that, I don't have time to now. But I would encourage you to wait. Like if, if you've just been through a divorce, I would say wait. give it like two to five years. Yeah, just for time to heal, for time to process, for maybe the hope of reconciliation. I've heard some crazy stories. I heard a story about a husband and wife who were Jewish, who got divorced, both came to Christ, got remarried to one another. Isn't that amazing? So it's like God does those things. And so, you know, if if your divorce is biblically legitimate, man, I believe that, that you can be remarried. Now, another question that comes up is, okay, Josh, what if my divorce was not legitimate, And now I'm remarried. Like, am I just in like a constant state of adultery? Like, what, should I get divorced again? Like, what should I do? And and here's the, the short answer to a long question is, you are not in a perpetual state of adultery. According to Jesus, the event itself was sinful. Man, but it is not a state that you are living in. I appreciate what Pastor Kevin DeYoung says about this topic. He says, improperly divorced and remarried Christians should repent and be forgiven of their past sins but stay in the state that they are currently in. That might bring up a whole bunch of more questions for you. I know it's a very personal, very emotional topic. But here's just what I want to land on. In summary, God cares about marriage. God delights in it. He loves it. He loves strong marriages. And though he permits divorce on particular grounds, it grieves his heart. So the question is why? And why does God care so much about marriage? Well, in addition to all the reasons that we've mentioned, the, the way it represents his love to his people, the way it represents his character, man, your marriage is missional. You ever thought about this? Your marriage is missional. Here's a question. What is the hope of the world? Like, what is, what is the hope of all of the people that live near you, of your family members, the, of your coworkers, of students at UVA, man, of the nations of the earth? Man, what is their hope? Well, the gospel of Jesus Christ Who has been entrusted and commissioned to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to their neighbors and to the nations? The church. So the hope of the world is strong churches. Well, where do you get strong churches? Well, by and large, you get strong churches from strong families. Strong churches are made up of strong families. Well, where do strong families come from? Well, by and large, strong families come from strong marriages. So here's a profound, remarkable thought. You ready? The hope of the nations is tied to the health of your marriage. The salvation of the world is connected to the strength of your covenant. God has so designed marriage that it demonstrates his character, that it helps us understand the gospel, and that it is a strong light in the midst of a dark world. Your marriage matters. It matters to you personally, I know that. But it matters in a grand, redemptive way. Matters for our church. Matters for your neighbors that don't know Christ. It matters for the millions and millions of people around the world who've never heard Jesus' name. So where do we get the strength to build strong marriages? Because marriage is hard. Marriage is hard. Where do we get the resolve to continue? Where do we get the energy and the emotional resources to love your spouse when your spouse is unlovable? Well, you get all of that by looking at Jesus Christ. You realize that Jesus Christ is married to the worst spouse imaginable—the church. Imagine this: Jesus Christ forgave his bride as she was crucifying him. He looked at his bride and he said, "I forgive you, and I love you, and I'm going to do this so that I can cleanse you and I can bring you into a covenant relationship with myself." You see, Jesus is the perfect spouse. He will never abandon you. He'll never be unfaithful. Guys, your earthly spouse is going to disappoint you in a myriad of ways. They're never going to be able to complete you. They're never going to be able to save you. And when you realize that what your heart and your soul longs for is not found in a spouse or in a perfect marriage, but it's found in the Lord Jesus Christ, it allows you to serve your spouse. It allows you to love your spouse. It allows you to lay your life down for your spouse in the way that Jesus Christ, the perfect spouse, has laid his life down for you. And it emboldens you and it strengthens you to not just go for the five-year run, but go for the 50-year run. And to build the kind of marriage that generations upon generations look back at and say, I came to Christ because of their marriage. I saw the reality of the gospel in the way that they forgave one another and they were faithful to one another and they loved one another and they served one another. Friends, your marriage matters for the glory of God and the salvation of the nations. And Jesus Christ is where you find the strength to love your spouse when it's hard, to persevere when you want to quit and to be steadfast in your covenant. you bow your heads with me. I know that a topic like this lands so differently for different people. And so I just feel feel led in this moment. And if you would, if if you're married, would you just grab your spouse's hand if they're next to you? And if you're single or, or you're single again, would you just Would you just raise your hand up? Would you just extend it? I just want to pray. I just want to pray over our marriages and our church. I want to pray for those who are walking through hard, hard seasons. Father God, we love you. We thank you for your ideal for marriage. But God, sometimes when we look at your design for marriage, it overwhelms us and it crushes us because it feels like we're so far from it. So God, let's pray for your spirit to encourage right now. I pray for your spirit to build up. I pray for the men and women in this room that are married but are struggling or married and they're, they're doing fine. I pray that they would be emboldened in their marriage. They'd pursue their spouse. They'd build a marriage that glorifies you. Lord, I pray for all those who have experienced divorce that they would feel your grace and your smile and your kindness and they would think of the words of Jesus in John 4 when he went to the woman who had been divorced five times and he redeemed her and he changed her and he sent her out as an evangelist. Lord, I pray that we would be that kind of church. Or that builds strong marriages for the glory of God, that comes along those who are suffering, those who have walked through divorce with grace and kindness and help, and that you would be glorified in it. God, give us grace to receive this text that can be very challenging, knowing that it's for our good and your glory. I pray all this in Jesus' name.